The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Addressing Unmet Needs in Anticoagulation for Thrombosis, Next Generation Strategies for Improving Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash SPK 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening and welcome to this session on addressing unmet needs in anticoagulation for thrombosis and tonight we're going to be looking to the future. And I'm joined today by Roxana Moran from Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. I'm Jeff Weitz from McMaster University. So this evening we're going to be exploring current standards in anticoagulation and looking at the future with the potential of factor 11 inhibitors to change the landscape for anticoagulation therapy. And we've given you three illustrative cases here that highlight some of the dilemmas that we're faced with our patients today. For example, a frail older patient with atrial fibrillation who's at high risk for bleeding and with comorbidities. How would we treat this person now and how might we treat that person in the future? Or a patient with STEMI who had a PCI is on dual antiplatelet therapy now for a month. What do we do now? When do we switch from dual antiplatelet therapy to single antiplatelet therapy? And is there now or is there ever a role for dual pathway inhibition therapy by adding an anticoagulant on top of antiplatelet therapy. And finally, someone with a non-cardioembolic stroke that received thrombolytic therapy has a good recovery. What do we use for secondary prevention? Do we use dual antiplatelet therapy, single antiplatelet therapy? What's the role for anticoagulation in that case? So here, let's start. Here we've got a frail 79-year-old woman with atrial fibrillation. She has a history of coronary artery disease, heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, and she had a recent GI bleed due to a gastric ulcer. Her creatinine clearance is 60 mLs per minute. Would you give her a full dose of a direct oral anticoagulant, a reduced dose direct oral anticoagulant, aspirin, warfarin, do nothing, or just throw up your hands, I don't know what to do. Well, there you are, you know, evenly split between full dose DOAC and reduced dose DOAC. So we're, we'll come back at, toward the end and we're gonna discuss these cases, but just interesting to see that split. Okay, now we have a 68-year-old man who had a STEMI, He's undergone PCI. He's been on DAPT for at least a month. What do you do to reduce his risk of recurrent adverse cardiovascular events? Do you transition him now to a single antiplatelet therapy? Do you use early anticoagulation as per the ATLAS trial, which just continue dual antiplatelet therapy? Would you add an anticoagulant later on, like COMPASS? Would you do nothing or again? Ask your colleague what to do. Okay, so 40% would continue DAPT beyond a month and about a quarter would transition to single antiplatelet therapy. I didn't ask you which anti single antiplatelet agent you continue, but that can be part of our discussion later. Okay, let's go to the next one. Okay, we have a 70-year-old woman, history of hypertension and dyslipidemia. She had a non-cardioembolic infarct. She got thrombolytic therapy. She had complete recovery of motor function. What would you give her now to prevent recurrent stroke? Would you give her DAPT for 30 days or three weeks or four weeks, followed by single antiplatelet therapy with aspirin? Would you give her aspirin alone? Would you give low molecular weight heparin? 
do nothing or again, don't know? Yeah, well, good, because 82% said DAPT for three to four weeks and then single antiplatelet therapy, and that's what the guidelines would say. And so we're going to go through these a little later and discuss what is it that we do now and what could we do in the future if we had an effective but safer anticoagulant. So the goals of this symposium tonight are to improve your understanding of the evidence supporting the use of anticoagulants that we have now, and more importantly, supporting the use or the potential use of factor 11 inhibitors. Remember, none of them is approved yet, so this is all the data that we're going to show you what we have now and where we're going with factor 11 inhibitors. And with this information, you're better poised to be able to anticipate how these agents might be used if they do come to the market. All right, let's get down to business. Let's talk about how we're going to move beyond the factor 10A inhibitors. So what I'm going to talk about in the next 10 minutes or so is why we need new targets for anticoagulants, what are the new drugs that address the target, and what are the indications that are being investigated with these agents. So we've come a long way with antithrombotic therapy. If you think about it, we had a hiatus for over 65 years where the only oral anticoagulant we had was warfarin or other vitamin K antagonists. And then we had the direct oral anticoagulants that came in on the market in the late 2000s, around 2009, 2010. And they changed the face of anticoagulation therapy. And now we're moving beyond that to factor 11. Now, the direct oral anticoagulants are a huge advance over vitamin K antagonists like warfarin. They're at least as effective as warfarin for stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation or for treatment of venous thromboembolism, but they're safer, particularly safer for the brain. A 50% reduction in intracranial hemorrhage with the DOAX compared with warfarin, and a 40% reduction in major bleeding in the VTE space. So very convenient, no monitoring, few drug-drug interactions, although some, and uh, safe agents. So why do we need new targets? Well, the goal of anticoagulation therapy is to attenuate thrombosis without increasing the risk of bleeding. And although there's less intracranial bleeding with the DOAX compared with warfarin, there's still an annual rate of major bleeding of at least 2 to 3%. And if we add up major and clinically relevant non-major bleeding, the annual rate can be as high as 10 to 12%. So we have to do better because with that bleeding, we have a lot of patients who are either afraid to take anticoagulants or they start and then they stop. So the fear of bleeding leads to the underuse of anticoagulants in ed eligible patients with atrial fibrillation and even the most recent Registry data suggests that up to 40% of patients who should be on anticoagulants aren't receiving them. And even if they are receiving DOAX, about 39% of patients receiving DOAX are getting the inappropriate use of the lower dose regimen with the false belief that the lower dose regimen will be safer. And not only is it not safer, it isn't, it isn't as effective. So we're doing our patients a disservice. So remember that coagulation can be triggered through two pathways. We have the extrinsic pathway. This is the tissue factor pathway. This is the pathway that's triggered when, say, an atherosclerotic plaque in a coronary artery is disrupted and that thrombogenic material in the core of the plaque is exposed to blood and we get clot formation. And then we have this intrinsic or contact pathway and this is the pathway that's triggered by medical devices such as mechanical heart valves or stents or catheters. 
and they converge on the common pathway at the level of factor 10. And of course, our current DOACs inhibit factor 10A or thrombin at that convergence. So you can imagine that they're very effective for preventing thrombosis, but they also inevitably will cause bleeding. So now we're moving upstream into the contact pathway at the left factor of 11, at the level of factor 11, to dissociate the pathways that initiate thrombosis from the pathways that initiate hemostasis. So this is why we can attenuate thrombosis without disruption of hemostasis. And let me show you how this works. Here you see hemostasis. So remember, hemostatic plugs seal leaks in the vessels. That is due to an outside-inside injury to the blood vessel. You have a wound in the vessel. You expose the blood to huge amounts of tissue factor that surround the blood vessel in that hemostatic envelope, and you get explosive thrombin generation and clot formation. Factor 11 really isn't required in that pathway. In the thrombosis pathway, where you get the disruption of the plaque, for example, a little bit of tissue factor, then you get clotting initiated through the extrinsic pathway, a little bit of thrombin is generated, and this feedback amplification pathway, where thrombin activates factor 11 to get more thrombin, is critical for that clot to grow and to block the blood vessel. So by targeting factor 11, we can block thrombosis, but because factor 11 is mostly dispensable for hemostasis, we don't get the bleeding. Now we have lots of evidence supporting 11 as a target, Human uh, genetic deficiency, people with congenital factor 11 deficiency are protected from thrombosis and they rarely have spontaneous bleeding. And there's genetic epidemiology data that show in Mendelian randomization studies that individuals with low factor 11 levels are protected from thrombosis. Those with high factor 11 levels have an increased risk of thrombosis. And in animal models, if you knock out factor 11 or you inhibit it, you can attenuate venous and arterial thrombosis, and you can't show an increase in bleeding. We have different strategies to target factor 11. We can knock down its synthesis with antisense oligonucleotides. We can use antibodies that bind to factor 11 and block its activation or block its activity or we have small molecules that bind reversibly to the active site of factor 11A and block its activity, much like the DOACs bind to the active site of factor 10A or thrombin. And we have clinical trials investigating factor 11 inhibitors in atrial fibrillation, people with prior stroke, non-cardiobolic stroke, end-stage kidney disease on dialysis, acute coronary syndrome, MI, total knee arthroplasty, and cancer-associated VTE. So many indications are being investigated. Now, usually, new anticoagulants start their investigation in patients undergoing arthroplasty because patients undergoing arthroplasty are at high risk for venous thrombosis unless prophylaxis is given, and you can easily detect deep vein thrombosis with a venogram, an x-ray of the veins of the leg. So it's a very efficient way where you can do phase two studies for dose finding to find out which doses of the anticoagulant are effective, and because they've just had surgery, it's a hemostatic challenge to see which agents and which doses are safe. And in studies with the antisense oligonucleotide with uh, two antibodies, Foxtrot with, with the Sosamab, a factor 11A inhibitory antibody. The ANT-005 study was with abilasimab, the same antibody you heard about today in the Azalea AF trial. Or with axiomatic, that's Milvexian, the small molecule. 
And in all of these studies, the factor 11 inhibitors were compared with enoxaparin, which is standard of care. And there was a there was a 40% reduction in the risk of venous thromboembolism, and there was a 60% reduction in clinically relevant bleeding, which is the composite of major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding. So good evidence that factor 11 inhibition is effective and safe, at least safer than enoxaparin. And I'm going to move over to Dr. Moran. Thank you, Dr. Weitz. Congratulations on your uh, distinguished scientific award at this meeting, and very, very well deserved, a lot of it for the work of understanding coagulation pathways and applying them in the best way to improve and enhance our patients. So for this, we all thank you. You've given us so much knowledge, and thank you for explaining how Factor 11 works and how excited we are about the future. And you might say, come on, not another antiplatelet, antithrombotic, anticoagulant. Don't we have enough? I, we just learned how the DOACs work. But the truth is, as you heard, that every single time we use these drugs, we're always plagued by the increased bleeding that we have been seeing. Of course, it's less than warfarin, but we still see bleeding issues. And uncoupling hemostasis and thrombosis is something that we've been looking forward to almost as a holy grail. Reduce thrombotic events without increasing bleeding. Could this at all ever be possible? And I think that the future is extremely bright with what we have seen. And today we saw the Ozalia results, which I will discuss with you. So the evidence is now clear that going upstream, you can dissociate hemostasis from thrombosis. Mechanistically, it works. And in the clinical realm, it also does. And imagine the clinical settings where we could apply this in our everyday practice, in a patient who's post-operative. How many of us are worried about bleeding? And how could this be making our lives so much easier? In the setting of an end-stage renal disease, do you know that for hemodialysis patients, we really have no clinical trials and no, none, because of the fact that these patients bleed so frequently, and there's been really no efficacy data at all in this patient population in large-scale cl clinical trials. After an acute coronary syndrome, we continue to be plagued with more bleeding uh, every time we stack our antiplatelet regimens, and we still see residual events in these patients. And of course, in secondary stroke prevention, when we are absolutely targeting residual ischemic risk and preventing, looking to prevent recurrent events, as well as atrial fibrillation, where we are absolutely looking for an agent because we know there are those patients with atrial fibrillation in whom we're concerned about bleeding and we're undertreating all of us the patients with atrial fibrillation. And this is one of the reasons why cardiovascular morbidity mortality continues to be the number one cause of death in every, um, in every country in the world. And imagine that if we actually get there, we might be able to reduce ischemic events without increasing bleeding. And then the sky's the limit of other areas that we might wanna focus in. These candidates are clear and absolutely underway. Small molecule asondexian, we'll talk about that today. Small molecule milvexian, the milvexian program, which is very large and encompasses atrial fibrillation, stroke, and acute coronary syndromes in a phase three program that could come close to 50,000 patients who will be enrolled in this program. And then, of course, this antibody, we'll talk about abilisimab. Ab 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 I can never do this. But we saw the data today. 
So let's begin with esondexan. This is a small molecule, factor 10A inhibitor, and this is the program that we saw in the phase two program, and every one of these um, compounds have been very well vetted through their phase one, preclinical phase one, and I'm sharing with you phase two programs that actually look almost like phase three, old phase three programs, large numbers of patients. The Pacific AF, atrial fibrillation, different dosing, and versus apixaban, and Pacific AMI, multiple dosing versus placebo in patients on, with acute myocardial infarction, and Pacific stroke, again, multiple dosing versus placebo on the background of single or dual antiplatelet therapy. Take a look at the number of patients in these just phase two programs, so they're really well tested. In atrial fibrillation, the phase two program was a prospective double-blind randomized clinical trial, active comparator, phase two program, two different doses of esondexian versus apixaban, 750 patients, and they looked at the primary safety endpoint of bleeding using ISTH major and minor uh, major and uh, non-major clinically relevant uh, bleeds, as well as some exploratory evaluation of the endpoint of strokes and systemic embolization, CV death, and MI. And what you see here is that it looked to be a promising therapy to minimize bleeding in atrial fibrillation patients, less bleeding compared to apixaban, but the efficacy data obviously are lacking because these numbers are small and we're waiting for the phase three programs. But you know, you see the number of thrombotic events are extremely low, but the bleeding events look extremely promising. In acute myocardial infarction, they looked at 1,600 patients, three different doses of esondexian on a daily basis versus placebo, two weeks post-study drug observation period, and Again, the safety bleeding endpoint and the efficacy endpoint of death, MI, stroke, or stent thrombosis in an acute MI patient population to evaluate the safety of these three doses versus placebo in acute MI patients who were being treated on dual antiplatelet therapies. And if you look here, there was no significant increase in bleeding. So again, underlying that uncoupling of hemostasis and thrombosis being evident here, even in acute MI with the background therapy of dual antiplatelet therapy, no fatal bleed, similar, similar BARC3 bleeding, and very importantly, um, near complete inhibition of factor 11. But if you look, on top of DAPT, there was um, the efficacy and the safety was still not 100% there. They didn't seem to show the clear signal for MACE reduction. And so there's question whether or not this particular program will go on. It's not yet been completely evaluated. In stroke, three different doses versus placebo. Again, similar endpoints, and in here, no significant, very important, no significant reduction of covert brain infarction or ischemic stroke with asondexian, but very importantly, no increase in major or intracranial bleeds. And even though you have large numbers of patients, imagine each of these dosings are um, small numbers of patients in these different dosing, no significant increase, no observed dose response in terms of reducing uh, ischemic stroke, but in an exploratory analysis, they found that this 50 milligram dose reduced symptomatic ischemic stroke and TIA, particularly amongst patients with atherosclerosis, which seemed to be a positive trend towards reducing stroke without increasing bleeding where this program is absolutely moving forward. And take a look at this analysis for the recurrent stroke or TIA in patients with extra and intracranial atherosclerosis. Asondexian worked much better. That trend was there versus placebo. And so moves forward the oceanic clinical program with robust evaluation in a phase three study of atrial fibrillation of asondexian versus apixaban 
18,000 patients, and the oceanic stroke, non-cardioembolic ischemic stroke or high risk of TIA, um, placebo control on top of standard of care antiplatelet therapy in 9,300 patients, and just yesterday, the Athena uh, oceanic Athena study in high bleeding risk patients in 2,000 patients, including um, 300 end-stage renal disease patients who will have this evaluation versus placebo with no background therapy at all. So it's a very, very interesting program. Moving on to Milvexian, which seems to be the largest phase three program, I'm bringing up the work of Dr. Jeff Weitz, where he looked at patients with um, total knee replacement studies with factor, the oral factor 11 inhibitor Milvexian versus anoxaparin in patients undergoing elective total knee replacement surgery, over 1,200 patients being evaluated with multitudes of dosing, twice daily as well as once daily, really well-vetted study to evaluate what could be the best possible dose here. And in patients undergoing uh, total um, knee arthroscopic or post-operative Milvexian was effective in reducing uh, for VTE prevention and was associated with less clinically relevant bleeding. This was really a very, very important news for the Milvexian program, especially because there was less bleeding compared to anoxaparin. And if you look at these, uh, you can see the, the, the bleeding events, um, much less versus uh, both clinically relevant and any bleeding, uh, very, very uh, important, and so therefore moving forward. And again, for secondary stroke prevention study, this particular program was also large numbers of patients, uh, I think it's like over 16, you know, 2,350 patients with oral factor 11 um, inhibition, Milvexian, plus clopidogrel and aspirin versus placebo plus clopidogrel and aspirin in patients with an acute ischemic stroke, multiple different dosing, again, very well vetted phase two program to look at this with MRI, a very um, well done uh, study. And in this study uh, that was um, presented um, last year, you could see a very, very important um, a re, uh, evaluation of no dose response in the primary composite endpoint, but doses from 25 to 100 milligrams were associated with a 30% relative risk reduction in the symptomatic ischemic strokes. So there were some numeric uh, increases in that major BARC3 bleeding with 50 milligram dose, but no fatal bleeding. This demonstrates that Milvexian pro profile in combination with antiplatelet therapy supported a very important phase three trials in uh, both ACS as well as um, symptomatic um, uh, stroke. Next uh, for Milvexian are these phase three programs. These are, this is the largest uh, factor 11 phase three program. You see here Labrexia stroke with 15,000 patients for secondary stroke prevention in acute coronary syndromes. I'm so excited to see that Labrexia program is moving on for an acute coronary syndromes as well as atrial fibrillation, um, almost 50,000 patients. And last but not least, the antibody program of abilisumab. Uh, you know this is a monoclonal antibody which inhibits factor 11, factor 11A. It's an intravenous or subcutaneous approach with a time to peak of about an hour with a one to three weeks if it's uh, subcutaneous. Half-life is 30 to 44 uh, days. And the phase two programs were done, again, on total knee replacements. And this was presented uh, a couple of years ago when we saw this open-label prospective randomized trial in 412 patients where they did show that a single dose of ab ab abilisumab after a knee arthroscopy was 
effective for prevention of VTE and associated with a very low risk of bleeding. And just today, we saw the Azalea Timmy 71 program in close to 1,300 patients, two different doses of, uh, of the antibody compared to rivaroxaban at 20 milligrams daily in patients with atrial fibrillation at moderate to high risk for ischemic stroke. And take a look at these, uh, these, these, these results. I think these are tremendous for factor 11 inhibition where you are seeing uh, that both doses quite effective in reducing bleeding compared to rivaroxaban tremendously and with greater than 95% inhibition of factor 11. So ladies and gentlemen, the future is bright. I can't believe this is going to happen, but factor 11 is a very promising target as a new anticoagulant. And I think these inhibitors are absolutely, we've shown you that they're in their advanced stages with phase three programs well underway. I'm proud to say that I'm part of the Milvexian um, uh, overall executive committee for the entire program with Dr. Jeff Weitz. And of course, these trials will absolutely establish the benefit and risk profiles in this patient populations. So, so now we'll come back to those cases that we discussed at the beginning and just have a brief discussion about them to give you a sense of where we are today with our dilemmas in anticoagulation therapy and where we could be in the future with factor 11 inhibitors. So here we have our 79-year-old woman with atrial fibrillation who has a lot of risk factors. She's frail, she has a history of falls, and she had a recent GI bleed. And uh, let's go back and look at your choices. And it was sort of evenly split between full-dose DOAC and reduced-dose DOAC. And I want to just point out that I purposely made the case such that there wasn't an indication for a lower dose of apixaban, nor is there an indication for a lower dose of rivaroxaban or adoxaban, if you wanted to use that one. And I don't think anybody's using dabigatrin anymore. So, you know, the correct one would be the full dose DOAC because we have no evidence that reducing the dose would protect the patient against atrial fibrillation. But you know, I promise you that if you ask the clinicians here, many of them, they said the lower dose, which is actually not effective and you're probably just still exposing the patient to a bleeding risk. But many, I think, in the United States, I can speak, are probably leaving these patients on nothing. But, but that's the dilemma we're in. We all want to do good for our patients, and so we want to prevent further bleeding, and she has a history of falls, and she's had a recent bleed. And so maybe you want to go for the lower dose, but just think if we had a safer option, we wouldn't be in this dilemma. Yeah, I mean, you really are between a rock and a hard place. This is exactly why these agents that were, and this kind of a scenario of a frail old lady falling with a high risk of fall happens a lot. We see a lot of these patients, and I think it's an important uh, part. Factor 11 is needed, right? But remember the data, if you, she had a gastric ulcer, you treat the ulcer, then her risk of recurrent GI bleeding is back to baseline. And, you know, it takes a lot of falls for the danger of bleeding with a fall to outweigh the danger of a stroke. And if you go to the lower dose, you get less protection from stroke and you don't really protect from the bleeding. So there's the promise for factor 11 inhibition. We saw the Azalea trial results of almost two years of potent factor 11 inhibitor therapy and about a 70% reduction in both major and clinically relevant non-major and major bleeding, and even a reduction in minor bleeding with abelacemab compared with rivaroxaban. So it does bode well for factor 11 as a safe 
target. Okay, now this is right up your alley, Roxana, so I'll let you walk through this one. So yeah, I mean, this is sort of a, a run-in-the-mill patient. Patient comes in, and I think one of the things we didn't do is a 68-year-old man, and you assume this patient is not really at a high bleeding risk. So I do want to kind of think about that because we didn't give you an indication. But it's an acute coronary syndrome patient um, uh, who's having a stent but um, of the culprit, but also two other lesions. So high thrombotic risk, has been on DAP for a month. So we said, um, do you transition to a single antiplatelet therapy? And many of you, um, a quarter of you would be doing this. Um, probably you're worried about bleeding, even if they're not bleeding now, and we feel that the stents are safe. But, you know, the, the guidelines would say, keep this patient on dual antiplatelet therapies for at least 12 months, actually, unless there is a bleeding risk. So if there's not a bleeding risk, you should be continuing DAPT. And we certainly, ATLAS um, was a very effective study, but there was so much bleeding that no one is using that ATLAS criteria. It's actually not approved, and it's not in the guidelines. The COMPASS strategy would be interesting down the line, but unfortunately, that has not picked up because this could be a, a patient who could transition from DAPT into a, um, a COMPASS strategy. Um, and, and I think that that's um, a, a dilemma. But the right answer is to keep these patients on for at least 12 months of dual antiplatelet therapies. That's the guideline if there is not a high bleeding risk. Now, if there's high bleeding risk, you would go to a single antiplatelet therapy as early as a month, but which one? So for those of you who go to aspirin, aspirin monotherapy, please raise your hand after one month in high bleeding risk patients. Clopidogrel monotherapy, please raise your hands. Okay, so it seems like many are going to clopidogrel monotherapy. What about ticagrelor alone? Ticagrelor monotherapy, if the patient was on ticagrelor. So a P2Y12 monotherapy, and there is good evidence there. So interesting to see, and especially today, we also saw another study with, um, with um, LVADs where aspirin, um, withdrawing aspirin was associated with a significant reduction in bleeding in those patients who are receiving LVADs. So again, the, here's an area where we are having a dilemma as well because all of the things I told you about are not, you're still concerned about the bleeding risk. Can we get an antiplatelet regimen that then could, uh, or anti-thrombotic anti regimen that would allow us to prolong uh, the treatment and, and protect the patient against ischemic complications without increasing bleeding. And I think this could be a great scenario for a patient who um, would like, we would like to keep on a prolonged uh, therapy and maybe factor 11 would be great in combination with clopidogrel monotherapy or even DAPT because we saw those data in the um, phase two program of stroke uh, and it's pretty convincing. Right, and, and I think here the, the potential role of 11 inhibition here because we had Atlas that showed us that the addition of an anticoagulant on top of dual antiplate therapy saved lives, but it was associated with an increased risk of bleeding, so it was never approved in North America. Downstream, with Compass, we saw that dual pathway inhibition with the low-dose rivaroxaban regimen of 2.5 milligrams twice a day plus aspirin was better than aspirin alone or better than rivaroxaban alone for prevention of cardiovascular death, MI, and stroke. But there was a 70% increase in bleeding, albeit not life-threatening bleeding. And so we're right walking a tightrope of better efficacy but more bleeding. So if we had a safer platform anticoagulant, then we could get the early benefits of, of ATLAS, the later benefits of COMPASS, 
in this ACS population. And I think the DAPT to single antiplatelet, that's a changing landscape. It's the amazing how much has changed yeah. into a shorter duration. Right, yeah. right. Okay, and let's go through the last one. This is secondary stroke prevention, and I know most of you as cardiologists will probably not get involved in these sorts of things, but here we have someone with a non-cardioembolic stroke, so this patient doesn't have known atrial fibrillation. She's had thrombolysis. She's got a good recovery. But we know that over the next year, the risk of recurrent stroke is at least 6%. So what did you guys pick for secondary stroke prevention? You picked the right one because the current guidelines would say that give dual antiplatelet therapy, most people with aspirin and clopidogrel for 21 days, and then switch to aspirin alone thereafter. Ticagrelor could be another alternative, but it's short-term DAP, not longer-term DAP, because then there's a risk of bleeding, and then long-term secondary prevention with aspirin. But the two stroke trials, the uh, phase two stroke trials with asundexian and with milvexian, if you look at them with symptomatic stroke, prevent, forget the covert stroke, both of them showed a reduction in symptomatic stroke with adding a factor 11A inhibitor on top of antiplatelet therapy. So there is the potential to do better. And remember, we never went to the current generation of 10A inhibitors and non-cardioembolic stroke because there's too much bleeding. So we have, we have potential for the future. All right, so I've got some questions here. I'm gonna try and run through some of these, but if anybody has a burning question, you can also come to the microphone. So I'll answer some and I'll pass them on to you, Roxana. So here's one, indication of anticoagulation and aneurysm with distal arterial thrombosis. And I think if you have someone with atherosclerotic disease in the aorta, the distal aorta plus peripheral vascular disease, you treat the art peripheral arterial occlusion if you need to with thrombectomy or with thrombolysis and then the compass regimen is the perfect choice for prevention of further atherothrombotic events and that aneurysm. But what do you think about factor 11 in, in for peripheral arterial disease? I don't have it, but you know, if it works in the ACS setting for yeah. long term, it probably would work there too. Be very interesting. Okay, catheter-related thrombosis. Again, remember that devices work through that contact pathway, 12 activation, 11 activation. So of course, 11 inhibitors have a potential role in the treatment of device-associated thrombosis, whether it's catheter thrombosis or valve thrombosis. And then there's a couple of 11 inhibitors in patients with GI malignancies at risk for GI bleed. Again, the abilisumab studies are taking patients with cancer and VTE, and the high-risk patients are being randomized to abilisumab or to daltaparin, so we'll find that out. But the Azalea study today showed that compared with rivaroxaban, abilisumab really wiped out the GI bleeds. So somebody asks, well, why do people bleed in the GI tract with the DOAX? And it's likely because with the DOAX, you have active drug in the gut. So if you have a lesion, a mucosal tear or a tumor, and you bathe it with an anticoagulant, it's no question you're gonna bleed. But with abilisumab or an oral 11 inhibitor, maybe the risk is lower. And certainly with abilisumab, there were virtually no GI bleed. So that is an interesting difference that we'll see. And uh, what about the duration of triple therapy in ACS patients with AF? Yeah, a very good question. Lots of clinical trials on there. And, and at the moment, there is a, um, uh, a pathway that has been put together by both consensus 
the Northern American and, and European um, uh, consensus that basically says that the go-to therapy for most of the patients, the default therapy, is dual pathway inhibition with, um, without aspirin on board, so stopping the aspirin after a very short period of, of triple therapy. Now, that is not uh, something that you, you imagine, because each and every one of those direct oral anticoagulant studies were underpowered to evaluate stent thrombosis, for example, or high ischemic risk patients. So that duration of the triple therapy, although it should be as short as possible, and the default is you know, somewhere as early as discharge or even just seven days of triple therapy, uh, some you have the opportunity to go to about a month in those with high thrombotic risk for triple therapy for a month and then dropping the aspirin and, and making sure the patient is on a direct oral anticoagulant plus clopidogrel as the P2Y12 inhibitor. There have been some cases of combining uh, the direct oral anticoagulant with ticagrelor, but their numbers are small. And obviously, at the moment in the European guidelines, it's a class three indication to combine oral anticoagulants of any kind with the potent P2I12 inhibitors. Um, but in certain cases, you would imagine you might want to do that in absence of aspirin. But again, case by case. And there are a few questions about um, indications that we didn't cover. For example, if you had a parenteral agent like abelacemab, for example, where one intravenous injection would give you 30 days of prophylaxis, could that be used for longer-term out-of-hospital thromboprophylaxis in the medically ill? We saw a very high rate of VTE and other and an arterial thrombosis in the pandemic in patients who were COVID positive. So th there's a possibility there. That's not a, an indication that's being pursued. I'd like to just invite you to come to the microphone with any, questions, any questions so we can. Feel free. It's really open. Please, if there's anything we can help to address, any thoughts you have, please come and. And if you want to enroll in our trials, let us know. Microphone's right here. Just to say who you are and where you're from and then ask your question. Good evening. Dr. Dalia Gedrimina from Hartford Hospital. I was very interested in your presentation, and I think that Azalea trial gives a lot of new thoughts and a lot of good things in the future to use. One of your slides showed that during follow-up, you have some laboratory tests to be done. I just wanted to know how this follow-up should be done for these new medications. Yeah, it's a good question, and, and honestly, I'm not very familiar with the Azalea program. I'm not involved in that particular program. Do you know what those follow-up tests are in these patients with Which test? Which? For Azalea, I don't, I don't know. She's asking about the, that they said follow-up tests in certain patients or... Well, I think that what's still, it's a, the study hasn't closed down yet because the, the data monitoring committee said that they should shut down, but they've got to orderly make sure Finish that everybody everything. has their last visit. So that's what's still okay. going on as they shut down the study. And they're also going to be an option for people to Get continue the therapy if they wish, if they're on the high dose abelacemab regimen and they want to remain on it, they'll have an option of continuing that. So, but the study hasn't completed. So what you saw today in the presentation was really what the data monitoring committee saw when they were gonna close the study. Other questions? Yes. Bela Benzel from Hungary, Europe. Uh, first of all, I would like to congratulate you on this fantastic program and, and this uh, uh, wonderful overview of the mechanism and the trials. Uh, I would one short comment regarding one of the cases of the 79 years old, very frailty old lady who had GI bleeding and uh, the choice was full dose doc 
but you said that uh, 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 reduced dose DOAC is not indicated in this case because of the uh, dose reducing criteria is not met of the 10A inhibitors, but I would give in this case the low dose dabigatran because uh, between 75 and 80 years old patients, uh, you can choose the one, uh, 150 or 110. If the bleeding risk is larger, you can choose the low dose, and the other case, the normal dose. Right. I, but I, my, yes? Yeah. You take your point, but just remember that you're in the US right now. The 110 milligram dose isn't available here. Yeah, okay, because it's my European uh, I know, aspects. it's available okay. in Canada too. <laughs> And so yes, it would be it would be an option. It wasn't associated with more GI bleeding than warfarin, but warfarin is associated with GI bleeding too. So ideally, we'd want something that is associated with less GI bleeding than both of them. Yeah, but my question would be the the abalatumab, which is a, a long term, long longer uh, uh, term effect compared to the small molecules. I'm very happy that the small molecules has a very short half-life. But what to do if a patient's under uh, monoclonal antibody therapy, factor, uh, factor 11A inhibitor, and uh, this patient has to uh, underwent an urgent operation or, or suffering from a myocardial infarction, how to override the bleeding risk? Great, great question, and that'll be That'll be the topic of another presentation at ACC, I think. So in the Azalea study, you can imagine an elderly population of atrial fibrillation patients followed for several years. There were lots of procedures that were done, and many of those patients had full factor 11 inhibition on board, and there were no major complications. People were able to undergo procedures they couldn't stop it, and they didn't require bailout therapies. So I think that the picture for managing periprocedural management of these patients is going to be very different with factor 11 inhibition than it is with our current direct oral anticoagulants. In our end-stage kidney disease studies, we had patients who had potent factor 11 inhibition who went for kidney transplantation and didn't have any problems. So I think it's a different picture there. But I take your point, and you know, people always ask, although nobody did so far, what do you do if you have to reverse? And it depends a bit on the agent, but if you have a small molecule 10A and 11A inhibitor, you can give tranexamic acid, and you can, if you really need to reverse, you can give a small dose of recombinant factor 7A to bypass the factor 11 inhibition. That's what we do to treat people with congenital factor 11 deficiency who bleed. So there are things you can do. There are strategies you can use. But I think in general, the risk of bleeding is lower than it is with what we have now. So thank you very much and uh, all the best. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash SPK 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb and Janssen Alliance.